Good morning. It's been a while since uh, I've been here. It is delightful to come back, truly. I do love working with Andrea and Kevin and Joel and Mike and the staff and certainly enjoy my time, believe it or not, before and after service and uh, in between services, just trying to catch up with some of you, what's happening in the world of Wyzetta Free. I did manage to steal a pastry from the Navigators class here in between services, and I was delighted in that. So I have some dissonance going on about delighted and stealing at the same time, but sort that one out another way. It is good uh, to be back, and as we begin this morning, what I want to do by way of introduction is present for you three bits of information. And these bits may seem, at least at first blush, to be disconnected from one another. And what I hope happens then throughout the course of the sermon is that these bits get woven together for us and create a picture of sorts related to what Michelle and Kevin just read about this dwelling place of God and what God might be looking for in his dwelling place. So that in mind, information bit number one is this. Kevin asked me to get this new series started for you about Haggai the prophet, particularly the background information for the book. And I confess, I didn't know much about Haggai going into this. In fact, I don't even really know if it's Haggai or Haggai or which way it is supposed to be. I asked God about that this last week, and he was silent. So I checked that bastion of all certain knowledge, Wikipedia, and that was utterly unhelpful as well. So Michelle was giving me grief in between services, uh, telling me that she thinks I said Haggai 12 times and like Haggai 6. So I might try to throw a third pronunciation during this service. But I didn't know, I really didn't know anything about Haggai in the sense that this book only has two chapters. I kept looking for chapter 3 to find out what might happen in the story. But as I looked, what I did discover was that this was a time in which the Israelites were returning from captivity. And as was read, they were called by Haggai to rebuild the temple. And so as Kevin was talking with me about that, he said, you know, make some connections between the story of Haggai with where we are as a church in terms of possibly renovating this building a bit. And he didn't tell me what connections I had to make. He let me just do that from what was in the text, which I was really grateful for. It's part of why I like working so much with Kevin. He probably knows I wouldn't have listened to him anyway. But I love just that he wants to just be faithful to the word. So that's information bit number one, connections with Haggai and the rebuilding with what is happening here with this building. With that in mind, information bit number two is this. First John says, this is the message we've heard from Jesus, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If anyone claims I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light, but anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go. It's information bit number two. Number three is 
This, a few weeks ago, I sat in Brugger's here in Wyzetta, just right down the street as my daughter was at dance in Creo. And a pastor friend of mine, I noticed he was sitting at a table nearby and he was deep in his sermon, so I didn't want to bother him or he me, and we kind of connected eyes and said hello, and I went to my table. And a few minutes later, he popped up from his table and walked over with a sense of urgency about him, and he was very earnest with this, and he looked me in the eye and he said, Peter, what do you think is the most significant issue facing the American church today? That's quite a question. That's information bit number three. Number one, renovating the temple, including this one. Number two, God is light. Number three, what is the most significant issue facing the church today? Three threads, time to start weaving them together. I would like to pray as we move into this word, and I said this first service as well, I say it in this service too, is that in all the years of preaching and teaching, of which I've been fortunate to do, I don't know that I've had a word that has weighed heavier on my heart than this one. Mostly because as we get into this, we see something maybe bigger than we even know what to do with. At least it was that way for me this week. Hallie knows, my small group knows, that I've been in tears not knowing which way to turn or how to go. The Spirit feels so large around that. It's interesting, when you read the prophetic books, it always starts with a word that's difficult like that. And it didn't occur to me until just this morning that that's the way that those books work, that it starts with a heavy place, but in that heavy place, there is always an invitation. There's always an invitation to life and to something different and to things like streams of living water and God restoring and rebuilding. And in that place is where I found my feet. I don't know how to do it, but I believe God can. I really do. So I join you in this with the struggle of wondering the word is for me as much as it is for anybody that would be here for the church at large. And with that, let's pray as we begin. God, I do ask just for the, the, the simple reality that you would call forth your life. That into the darkness you would shine. Darkness maybe even some of us carry, myself included, that you would in those places do what you do in your grace and call forth life. We ask you to do your work among us in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. 587 years before the birth of Jesus, Israel was near its final collapse. The once proud nation is now just a shadow of its former glory. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom have been wiped out by the brutal Assyrian Empire. The two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin, that remain are now teetering on the edge. They are surrounded and under siege in their capital by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. They've already been invaded multiple times. The final invasion comes in 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar's general and his armies walk right into the holy temple of Israel, carry off some of the most precious possessions from the most holy place, and set fire to the entire building, utterly destroying it. Should not have been possible. For the glory of the Lord... The Shekinah of God should have been in that most holy place. And if God was there, the Babylonians walking in 
would have been utterly destroyed. For to walk in in an unholy way, to defile the temple in that time, meant death in the presence of God. But Babylon walked in unopposed. God's presence had left the temple in judgment upon the abominations of the Israelites and how they chose not to walk in the ways of God. It didn't matter that Israel was indeed still identified as a chosen people. It didn't matter that they had a building. It did not automatically mean that his presence was there in a dynamic way. And in fact, the prophet Ezekiel reflects on this story in his prophecy in chapters 8 through 11 of his book about the actual departure of God's glory from the temple, including this chilling verse that I found chilling this week in chapter 10, verse 18, where it says this, And now the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. It's perhaps maybe the most horrible moment in Israelite history. Fast forward now some 50 years after that, and Babylon is destroyed by Persia, and King Darius of Persia allows the Israelites to return to the land. And one would think this was great news. Finally, we're out of captivity. And yet by all accounts, and again, I didn't know this, but as I read some of the work, the Israelites were not anxious to return. They had made their way in Babylon. They had become prosperous in their commercial enterprises. They had become comfortable and had a lovely way of life. Not interested in being God's chosen people, nor was the temple, obviously, foremost in their minds because Haggai had to encourage them 15 years in to build it. The Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible records this about the state of their captivity and their return. Only those Jews who had caught a vision of service to God were seriously interested in the challenge inherent in restoring the years. For a great many Jews had managed to establish successful careers or business ventures in Babylon and were reluctant to abandon them for the prospects of a bleak and unpromising future. The state of shock that came with the conditions to which they returned had sapped their spiritual zeal, making them apathetic about restoring the ruined sanctuary of the temple. I had no idea. thought it would have been great news. But the people were more concerned with themselves and their own well-being and what would have to them been most important for their life moving forward than they were being a part of the dwelling place of God. And so in this context, the prophet Haggai appears to turn their minds back. And for me, as I thought about that, I thought this is actually staggering to wonder about this because how had they so quickly forgotten that the point of being the people of God would be that God would dwell among them? This was the God who carried them out of Egypt and led them by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the God that when they stopped in the wilderness, they, sent up, uh, they set up this tent of meeting because that was the central reality of their people, the presence of God. And anybody could go meet with them there. And when they crossed over into the promised land, they set up that same tent of meeting in the city of Shiloh. This is where Hannah brought Samuel to the temple. This is where uh, Samuel heard from God's voice in this tent of meeting in Shiloh. A generation later, David took the Ark of the Covenant, which was central to that tent of meeting, and carried it to Jerusalem, dancing before the Lord in joy. 
And David's son Solomon then built the temple that we referred to that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. And in so doing, after it was built with the finest of furnishings, he looked towards God and prayed for God's presence to come. And the text is beautiful in how God comes and makes a dwelling place among his people. It's a central feature of this text. And yet, after the destruction of the temple, we see that the people don't really care about returning to it. So lost did they become. It wasn't the first time, actually, that God had removed his hand from his people. You might remember the story about when they carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle with the Philistines. Remember? And they thought, ah, we'll just take the Ark with us. That'll wipe out those Philistines. No humility, no wondering about who God is. Ah, we'll just do this. And God withdraws his hand. The Philistines take the ark, destroy the Israelites in that moment. And the daughter-in-law of the high priest Eli at that time had a baby when the ark had been captured. And she turned and named that baby Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. And so Haggai returns to Jerusalem among a people who are again not interested in building a temple. He calls them to do this work, and the story that you'll read in the weeks ahead is a story in which, which the people are sort of ambivalent about it. They don't care, and Haggai continues to call them back, and God says, if you just do this, I promise you, I will move among you. I will be your God. I, I will dwell in your midst. Walk away from that way of life. Turn back towards me, and I promise I will make my dwelling place among you. And the story ends in chapter 2, as I said. And everything is inconclusive. It doesn't ever say if God actually does fill his temple again. And in fact, the literature outside of the biblical text suggests uh, from the Jewish writers of that day that God never did actually return. That's a heavy word. And among other things, what we learn from this information bit number one is that just because we have a people and just because we have a building— and maybe just because we have a sign and a steeple and some pews doesn't mean automatically that God is there. Information bit number two, then, is this. If you remember, I read the passage about those walking in light and walking in darkness, and that if we hate a fellow believer, that we are walking in darkness in that. Well, fast forward some several hundred years after Haggai and the people rebuild the temple. And God doesn't show up there. Well, now things have changed. For the temple is no longer a place made with human hands. Paul says this to the Corinthian people. He says, now you individually and collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God making his dwelling place with you. And then he further adds in Ephesians, and this passage all week just made me cry. Remember this about you, Paul says. You are God's people, and you are members of his household. You are built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone of this temple. And in him, this whole building, that is you and me and us, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to be a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. 
It's God making his dwelling place among his people. And I don't know how you hear those words, but when I just sort of pause in my week or in my day to actually think about it, it's a little bit stunning. I sometimes will ask my students at Bethel and Northwestern this question, and it sounds like a ridiculous question when I ask it until I sort of just pause in my spirit to let it it in again. And that question is this. What if God was actually real? What if God was actually real? And really moved in our time and space? What if God wasn't just a theological idea about whom we argue or a being that we say we must believe in to somehow secure our afterlife or related to a book that we try to read and just be obedient to? Okay, all of the... What if God was real? And what if God was looking to dynamically dwell among a people that are built on the cornerstone of a very real person in Jesus Christ building up this temple in which he would then dwell. question from that then comes, what kind of dwelling place is he looking for? What would be central to that dwelling place? Well, here's what we know about God. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. And so if we hate a fellow believer, we're walking in darkness. We are blind. If we say, hey, we're living in the light, but hate a fellow believer, we're actually walking in darkness. Maybe you hear those words like I do and think initially at first, well, okay, that's a good word, but I know I don't hate anyone. I mean, gosh, that's a really strong word, Peter. Hate, I don't hate anyone. Well, part of what was convicting coming out of the Greek language in this word hate that John uses is that um, though there can be that force of the word in it, what's central to the word hate in this text is simply that you consider someone else lesser than yourself. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Because now it's my opinions that matter. It's my thoughts that matter. It's what I care about that matters. It's what I want to be about that matters. And if you get in the way of that, here are some other words that are part of this word hate. There are things like strife and discord and conflict. And then this little word that really bothered me all week, which was irritation. I know none of you have ever been irritated with somebody else. (laughs) I have. Years, actually, sometimes. And what the text is teaching is that if you are looking at somebody through the lens of irritation, if you're looking that they just should change or do this, or I have a grievance and you should change so that my grievance is resolved, we're the ones that are blind. We're the ones that are blind. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. What is he looking for? In a dwelling place, would he dwell among a people like that? It's a tough question. But I don't have any other way of getting around the question. Would he dwell among a people who are persistently irritated with one another, who, oh, I don't know, maybe gossip a bit here and there, maybe try to win the argument, and then everything will be fine? Takes me to information bit number three. And the biggest threat facing the church today. 
And when the pastor came up to me that morning, we looked at each other, and he was so earnest, and I almost kind of knew what he was going to say, and I knew what I was going to say, and we ended up answering it simultaneously as we stood there. He said, what is the greatest threat in the church today? And we looked at each other and said, conflict among believers. And it's not even close. Because, you know, ISIS or ISIL or whoever they are could overrun the church, and we could still be people of light. Secularization of our culture absolutely could happen. And we could still be people of light. Busy and fragmented are we, but even in that, we can still be people of light. Strife and discord, conflict and irritation, power plays and arguments, it's darkness. That's what the text says. I have no other way around it. The word felt heavy to me, and it got heavier as I began to read some of the stats about our churches in America today. Catch this one first, that 19,000 churches each year experience, quote, a major scarring conflict. That's 50 churches a day. Each day are reporting and saying we have a scarring conflict going on in our church. And as the research was, was pulled out even further, they said it's actually persisting and, and infecting the life of our church. We can't even hardly move forward. 19,000 a year. 1,500 pastors leave their positions every month. 1,500. 50 a day, again, leaving their positions every month. And they cite conflict and burnout as the primary reasons for leaving. 23% of all pastors have been forced out of their ministry at some point in their life, and all of the top seven reasons for that had to do with conflict in the church. Four to eight million lawsuits are filed every year by identified born-again Christians, most often against other Christians. That's 16,000 lawsuits a day in our country. ISIS? Yeah, scary. Could still be people of light. Secularization of our culture? Yeah, it's going to go that way. The tsunamis come. I got news for you. But we can still be people of light. We're busy. I get it. We can still be people of light. Strife and discord. Anger and irritation. It's a tough question, isn't it? God's presence isn't automatic. It isn't automatic. Just because you have a building with a sign and a steeple and a pew and a service doesn't mean that God is necessarily there. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about the challenge of this. No sooner are people together than they begin to observe each other and judge and classify each other. Oh, you're one of those kind of Christians. Thus, even as Christian community is in the process of being formed, an invisible, often unknown, yet terrible life and death struggle commences. What if God was real? What if God was really here? What if there's really a struggle going on in our country that, I don't know, maybe affects me a bit? I've been embarrassed this last week to think about how I've lived in irritation with my brothers and sisters. I've been there. There's no light in that. And the great lie that if I win the argument or my grievance is somehow, somehow um, fulfilled that they get it and they finally change, that I'm suddenly going to be fine, ah, it's darkness. It's a great lie. 
in his classic work, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, in the voice of a demon who is now mentoring another demon, says, we actually can do much of our work, fellow demon, even while they're working at church. We can encourage gossip while telling them it's just sharing news about what's going on at church. And surely you can bring to your, their minds what they don't like about their co-workers or especially their leaders and get them complaining. But tell them that they're only trying to make things better around the church. It's funny, I don't even need a great theologian to point to on this. Even my barber in Excelsior, and yes, I have a barber. <laughs> Laugh at me. And this guy's like, he's like 147 years old, right? Because there's no barber under the age of 30, so he's been there forever. I don't know, it's, it's the longest lived profession you can possibly have. As we were chatting him in the chair, and he found out I was regularly in ministry, he bent my ear for about the next 15 minutes. It was the longest haircut I've ever had. <laughs> and he talked about what he had all seen in the churches and his time and what was going on, and he laughed, and he had such colorful language for it all. And basically, he was saying, you know, it's amazing how often it happens that a church gets a new pastor and is all excited for the next two years or so, and then they just run that pastor out of town. It's a barber in Excelsior. It's not even Bonhoeffer. You know, I teach at Bethel and Northwestern. I know some of you know that. And I have a lot of ministry students that, that I get to be a part of every year, even over several hundred sometimes. And these students are representative of so many of our evangelical churches in our country, our region in our country today. So I get this little sample size, this little petri dish of churches, not just one, but hundreds of churches, and we talk about these kinds of things. And what's staggering for me as we talk about these things is we, we often bring up how to handle conflict in the church. And we talk about the dynamics that were taking place maybe in their churches in this conflict, and almost to a student, they raise their hand and say, yep, that's what was going on in my church. Yep, 19,000 every year. 50 per day. I tie that bit of information in with renovating a temple, with that God is light, and irritation and conflict and strife. It's not part of his dwelling place. It's not part of where he lives. He'll call and he'll invite, and he'll continue to promise, I will come back if you sort this out. I really will, because I actually like you. But I have no part of that kind of stuff. I am light. And that is darkness. I remember a number of years ago, I went to a local church to be the weekend speaker. And Hallie and I walked in. You never really know for sure what you're going to run into. And we walked in and there was about 16 people in the pews. The place felt utterly dark and oppressive. And with a few minutes uh, left, and at the end of the service, we got down, and the people came up, I think all 16 at once, and, and they began to talk. And Hallie and I were like, okay. And, and what they talked about is they began almost immediately to tell us the history of their church. And they began to say, we're what's left. I mean, we're, we were the faithful ones. We won every argument. We saved the church. And they were even reliving those arguments in the moment. Right with Hallie and me, we were like, well, we're just God here. Why are you arguing with us? They won every argument. They persevered. They got rid of all the problem people. And the church 
was dead. Blind had they become, persistent in their irritation. That person can't do anything right. If we could just get rid of that person, if that person would just see, if you would just hear my grievance. Remember that stuff about log and specks in our eyes? 19,000 churches a year can't see. 19,000 can't see. And so into that, so we wrap some of this up, and this is where I'm not kidding. I, I don't know what to do. It was heavy on my heart this week. I know I'm part of that 19,000. I have been part of that. I have seen my brothers and sisters with irritation and strife and discord and believing if you would finally just do worship that way or preaching that way or wear those kind of clothes or wear those kind of shoes or whatever it is, we'll finally be together. Funny how those seeds find other things to find problems with, don't they? Never resolved. But I do have a hope. And I really do. That's where I found it this week, is that I remembered back some 30 years ago. Because I was in this place before this particular building was even built. We were meeting in the fellowship hall then. This was just a model out in the foyer. And I remember being in the first service in this building. Powerful time. Grateful for that time. And I reflected on my experience here as I grew up as a child and into my teens and later on into my 20s. And you know what? I met people here that were more expansive and had more capacity in their hearts than I knew what to do with. They were able to see past the grievance and see through the eyes of love. Those people are in my mind even now as I speak. Somehow, they, they were anchored in kingdom life in a different kind of way. It is actually possible. I believe in this. As part of, I, don't, yeah, I don't know if you know this. I don't speak in other places other than my home church and here. It's because I know a lot of you. And I believe in you. I really do. God's invitation is there. You don't have to become 19,001. You don't have to become 19,001. You could become one. You could begin to shine in a different kind of way. In the face of a culture, and by culture I mean our church, that has lost its way with conflict and strife and discord, you can become that one. But if you do, know this, it is not an easy journey. It is really hard to walk through and see people the right way. But if you can't see the Imago Dei, first and foremost, the image of God in people, if when I greet you, and when I greet you, and you, and you, and all the way across the board, if I'm not seeing first and foremost the image of God in you, regardless of the grievance, regardless of the issue, then I am blind. And I can't see. But I believe that this can be done here. God's invitation is always awaiting. I really believe that some 30 years from now, some other knucklehead who will have grown up in this church might just be standing right up here and said, you have no idea the expansive people that I met. The people that somehow walked through the turmoil and the struggle and the conflict and the strife and they began to see one another and they began to grow in love and they began to, to become people who saw, yeah, the discord, we, we got to sort things out. I get it. But I will not divide from you as we figure that out. It's our children. 
that maybe there's going to be one child in my class 30 years from now that says, hey, that wasn't my church. We knew what it meant to love. How do we do that? I'll close with this. The fact is, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have five easy answers for you. But what resonated in my spirit this week is this. Maybe we could just fix our eyes on Jesus. For he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And maybe he's actually real. And not some being I use to get to heaven. More persuaded by heaven have I become, not persuaded by Jesus. Maybe I need to be persuaded by him. And what is his way of life? Paul writes this about Jesus to the Philippian people. Why don't you stand as I read this, as we close? And the ushers are going to come forward as I read this. There is a second uh, offering that is received during this time, and this is for the people who are hurting among us, our brothers and sisters. And even as that plate is being passed, don't lose sight of the words in, uh, in terms of Philippians with Paul and what he says, but also too. Maybe even just take a moment in your spirit to think about those that we're now giving to who are actually hurting in life. And yes, give out of obedience, I get it. But what would it be like to give out of a broken heart because you can actually see the people in need? What would it be like to give from that place? To weep over them? Not just because it's the right idea, but because it's how we see one another. So go ahead and pass these plates as I read this word. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And when I read that, I think, well, if I do that, then my interests won't get met. Well, maybe if we're not all doing that, maybe we work together in that. And so in your relationships, says Paul with one another, have the same mindset as the one that you claim to follow. You claim to be a Christian? You claim to be a Christian. Have the same mindset as the one that you claim to follow, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And he took on the very nature of a servant. He was even made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, even becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. So John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But if you do not, know, if you do not love, you do not know God. For God is love. Pick a path. It's either 19,001 or one. It's life or it's death. I have great hope that you will choose life and thus be part 
of the great cornerstone of Jesus on whom he is building his church and in whom he dwells. Blessings as you go. Be at peace. Love well.